This is the Fixplasm podcast, dissecting fiction for role-playing inspiration. And I'm Ralph. Now, this episode is going to be um, in a minority of the episodes that we generally do. So usually episodes are driven by the fiction uh, because it has an interesting idea. And then we think about interesting role-playing games to fit to it. In this instance, the role-playing game kind of comes first. And that is the reason for this particular book. I've been working on a role-playing game called Lag, which is all about foreigners in a foreign city, a, a sort of dystopian, hypercapitalist state, um, where they all have different reasons for being there, and they're all suffering from jet lag and uh, general feelings of displacement. So they have relationships in the hotel with the other guests who they've not previously met. Then they've got relationships at home. And finally, they have people they need to do the missions with. Inspired by Lost in Translation and a few other movies, but Lost in Translation is the most obvious one, uh, where we have Bill Murray as a, an aging celebrity there to promote whiskey. And um, uh, Scarlett Johansson is basically a hanger-on to somebody else who's doing a job and is bored out of her mind. So one of the things uh, about Lag is it is based on... Uh, well, I took for inspiration, I took for inspiration drama system and specifically the Malandros implementation of it by Tom McGrenery. And Tom read the blog post and said some nice things about it. And he made one particular comment, which was this. Have you read Patricia Highsmith's The Tremor of Forgery? It has the right sort of alienation, though it's not quite in the right space to coexist with the city-state. It's more of a crumbling resort world, the sort of Ballardian milieu where you might set scenes at sun-beaten poolsides and catch glimpses of eavesdroppers in echoing courtyards. He's got a nice way of words, hasn't he? Um, anyway, so one of the things that ticked the box immediately was the uh, the likening to J.G. Ballard, and uh, I, uh, which I'm a big fan of uh, J.G. Ballard's gated communities concepts. So I said, well, that's great. I'm going to read The Tremor of Forgery, and I'll chase it down with a reread of Ballard's Cocaine Nights, which will come in a later episode. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give a synopsis of the book. I'm going to then talk about the themes, and then I'm going to talk about the role-playing elements. But a lot of what I'm going to talk about is a sort of a, a direct contrast with the design that I've put forward for lag. And then I might talk a bit about the recent playtest I did of lag and where I'm going to go next with the game system and generally what I feel about drama system and its suitability for certain subjects and also its shortcomings. Okay, the synopsis. This is the setup. Howard Ingham is a writer and he's staying in Tunisia to work on his latest project which is a film script, and this follows the suggestion of a collaborator and friend, John Castlewood. So in the first chapter, we, we kind of learn about Ingham's isolation and his longing for contact while he stays alone in his rented bungalow. Um, he frequently asks the concierge whether there's been any post for him. He visits local restaurants that Castlewood has mentioned to him, because Castlewood's familiar with Tunisia, that's where the connection comes. Um, he also pines for Ina, who is his lover back in New York, and he spends the rest of the time writing. And it's very much like he's in stasis, at least at the start of the, uh, at least during the first act, waiting for something to happen. And obviously he's waiting on Castlewood. Uh, he's waiting on letters from Ina. And um, in between, he's basically got this um, emotional void that is being filled up with thoughts about what people are doing without him. Some of it feels a bit Barton Fink. Uh, which is, by the way, my favourite Coen Brothers movie, um, where John Turturro's character has a similar lonely experience writing in his hotel room uh, with only John Goodman for any real kind of company. 
what's important here for the setup is the relationships. And there are three kinds of relationships we've got here. We've got expats, then we've got locals, and then we've got the people back home. He's seeking company. He first makes contact with a man called Francis J. Adams, uh, who's another American from Connecticut. And he's not the sort of person, I, I get the sense, that um, Ingham would normally seek for company. But he's actually living in a bungalow nearby, and uh, he's um, and Ingham is isolated from everyone else. So they form well, an acquaintance, a, a polite uh, friendship. Um, Adams is a middle-aged man and who records misses on American culture for broadcasters, um, I guess propaganda, and Ingham nicknames him Owl or for Our Way of Life. He also meets another character called Anders Jensen, who's a homosexual Danish artist. Um, early on, Jensen actually propositions him, uh, but being straight, he declines. But this doesn't actually affect their relationship at all. Um, Jensen's very pragmatic that uh, some men just aren't into that, but he's also makes it clear that one of the reasons he prefers men is because it's less complicated. And this is kind of an interesting thing for Jensen to say to Ingham, because Ingham's love life is complicated by distance and by a few other things that happen in, in the story. So he ends up being on quite intimate terms with Jensen. Uh, they, they communicate at an emotional level. They're, they're, clear, they're close friends. Jensen becomes a confidant. Um, maybe it's partly the uh, shared artistic temperament, Jen, Jensen being an artist and, uh, and uh, Ingham being a writer. Uh, it's not, it's not uh, unreasonable. So what we've got is Owl tends to be starting off uh, his relationship with Ingham starts off as as a sort of polite small talk and very much um, it seems that they're they're thrown together and they're they're kind of just making the best of it uh, but Jensen is someone he actually takes pleasure in the company of now the second set of characters are the ones the locals um, and to be honest, Ingham shows real discomfort with his local contacts at the start. Um, he's comfortable enough with the hotel staff who have to conform to Western expectations of service. Um, but everyone else he's quite suspicious of. Um, and it, it does actually border on uh, certain prejudice, I would say. Um, he's He looks around and he does see criminality and is concerned for his belongings and expects the people he sees to actually be coveting his possessions. Um, he's predisposed to this partly because Jensen's dog has gone missing and Jensen believes that you know, the, someone has harmed his dog and taken him away, possibly killed it, and, uh, and which is a, a miserable thing, but also it uh, paints this sort of this faceless uh, local uh, as other and less than human. Um, Another thing that he finds early on is a body in the street who's just been stabbed. And uh, later he goes back and finds um, just the bloodstain. It looks like everything has been taken away, almost almost as if it never happened. But all these together give a um, what appears to be uh, not a small amount of unease in Ingham's mind in how he regards the locals. Uh, so he basically depersonalizes them. And, and this is really important for his plot arc. And the third group of people are the people at home, and that is mainly Ina and John Castlewood. And we don't hear much from either of them at all, uh, at least not for a while. So 
the drama that happens. The first thing that really sets the tone, that really upsets his world, is um, he, uh, in between the contacts he has with Ina and other people, he imagines what Ina is doing and imagines the worst. And then he finds out something really terrible, which excuses the lack of contact on their part, which is John Castlewood has committed suicide. Uh, he finds out he actually committed suicide in Ingham's uh, New York apartment. And Ina being distant is initially excused because she's been horribly affected by this revelation as well. It turns out that she found Castlewood's body. And it's later it's later indicated that she also had a, a casual sexual relationship with Castlewood, although that's, that's not explored too carefully. Um, and it doesn't really seem to affect Ingham. Perhaps because... Ina and Castlewood and the others also aren't strictly real people. They're kind of they aren't people. They aren't people he has direct contact with. Um, the people he's interacting with or having a relationship with are, in part, a fabrication. Uh, they are an archetype that he has built up and, and imagining their lives. But Ina, his relationship with Ina itself, whilst uh, passionate and uh, and longing, is also complex and slightly idealized now the the other bit of the drama that's happened is a burglary at one one point of the night he's forgotten to lock his front door and somebody steals into his apartment his bungalow um he doesn't know who it is he doesn't turn the lights on and he throws his typewriter at them and he knows he hits them and he suspects that he's actually dealt them a great blow possibly a fatal one now, previously, he's seen a particular person hanging around his car and he's had some items stolen out of the back of it and he assumes it's the same person. But when he tries to ask around with the hotel staff about, was there, tries to obliquely ask, was somebody taken away in the night? And he doesn't actually ask that, that's the thing. He doesn't report any of this. He tries to find out, but otherwise it just stays within his own head and preys on his mind. Um, there appears to be this conspiracy of silence about what's happened to this individual who just seems to have been dealt a fatal blow and the body has been disappeared. Uh, no one's come looking for it afterwards. No one appears to be looking to punish anyone, certainly not him. Still, it, I think it's fair to say that he feels he should be punished. All of this, uh, this lawlessness, this um, dispatching of a dead body in the middle of nowhere, uh, the lack of any overt policing contributes to the the general lawless feel of the environment and i would say it probably also isolates ingham now this upset prompts him to leave the relative luxury of his apartment for various reasons but it's actually quite important for his development and he, he leaves the apartment and he ends up living like a local he rents a very cheap apartment right next to jensen's uh, hasn't got a fridge, hasn't got an, um, its own toilet facilities. The bed's made of orange crates because the landlord doesn't really understand Western beds. Um, and this kind of uh, ascetic way of living, this change in his environment, turns out to be immensely productive. And you can imagine him, basically, he sweats away during the day, writing furiously, and at nights he drinks with Jensen. Uh, he washes in the courtyard and you know, uh, relieves himself there as well. And uh, you can imagine this figure just um, sweating in shirt sleeves, bent over his typewriter and churning out 
the work that he set there to do, which, by the way, he's decided to finish despite finding out that his main contact has taken his own life. One of the reasons that he leaves, though, is because Adams has started asking questions about his involvement with something. Adams never comes out directly and suggests that he was involved in a violent altercation. It's never even mentioned, but it's clear that Adams knows something. And we start to get uh, their relationship moves from the realm of just polite small talk to more about opinions. And uh, and it this is a risky thing when with a relationship. Um, the um, the way that people communicate. Uh, generally is is on several levels you start off with with just sort of um just hello and that's it and then people start to have relation start to initiate a small talk and then past small talk you start to get get to the realm of facts and opinions and that's where you start risking offending people once you've got over that and you've actually made friends you then start communicating communicating on emotional levels uh, and then above that, you have peak, which is the sort of you're, you're in sync with somebody and time just flies when you're with them and you really like talking to them, etc. So his relationship with Adams has been up until now small talk. And then now it takes a turn where Adam starts to put more and more of his own personal philosophy into their conversations. And uh, Ingham basically uh, does not deal with this very well at all, partly because I think he takes it partly as accusatory, although I think there's. I need to reread that and see if it's actually the case. But it's definitely the sense that one of the things that also drives him away is the fact that um, Adams is probing him for some kind of confession, ostensibly because Adams feels that it's good for him. Now, all this is particularly interesting when Ina turns up in Tunisia. She's chosen to travel there and. Um, this is in the third act, where she's no longer a character who's distant and only communicated with in, in letters which are one-way monologues um, with, with a lot of space between them. They're not real. Uh, they're, they're, they're asynchronous communication. So when Ina comes to stay, a couple of interesting things happen. First of all, Ingham basically says, well, I can't have a living in my apartment. Um, she, you know, this would not suit her at all. She's used to um, Western luxury and comforts, and so he puts her up in a hotel. And I think that's partly genuine for her, but it's also partly performative because he's demonstrating to her that he has not degenerated completely, that he's still retaining um, the character which she expects from their relationship. The other interesting thing that happens is, of course, she's drawn into his social circle of, of expatriates. So he and Ina and Adams and Jensen all go out to dinner together and they get more and more of this um, politicised and opinionated conversation and dialogue where Adams point, pointedly um, suggests to, um, to Ingham that he needs to unburden himself and come clean to at least Ina for the sake of their relationship, which is something that Ingham just seems to be unable to do. And... Uh, Again, this puts a further rift in his relationship with Adams. They, I really don't think he likes Adams at this point, but he does have a point. And, and this, uh, and, and this, um, the earlier altercation with the burglary, where he may or may not have killed someone, still weighs heavy on his heart. At the end of the story, some of the mysteries are resolved and others aren't. He leaves everyone on good terms. Ina disappears. And that's pretty much the end of their relationship. Um, 
So the other two relationships he's got, there's Jensen, who actually invites him to stay in Stockholm with him. And I was expecting him to take Jensen up on that offer. In fact, I was almost saw the growing relationship between Ingham and Jensen to be um, uh, a homosexual romance. Um, I don't know if that's fair to say, but he does at one point imagine, you know, try to imagine what it's like to have sex with another man. And not, and, and, and he dismisses the idea, not because it repulses him or he doesn't really like it, but mainly because he doesn't think he'd know what to do, which is kind of interesting. Um, and so at the last minute when he, he promises Jensen he'll come and visit and then books a flight back to America straight away, it suggested that he's, there could have been something there and he's bottled it at the last minute. And then there's the other relationship he has with Adams, which has, it's gone, uh, it, it took a very difficult turn when Adams held up a mirror to him and he didn't like what he saw. Uh, with a bit of distance between those conversations and now, it seems like he's forgiven Adams and uh, the two of them part on good terms with Adams seeing him to his, to his flight. And that's basically it, what happens. There are some things that aren't really resolved. We we don't really know why Castlewood took his own life. We never find out what happened to the burglar, who it was, whether they were responsible or not. Jensen's dog comes back, by the way, which is nice and happy. A lot of this book is all about Ingham's introspection and how he feels about what's happening around him and what he imagines the people who are distant to him are doing, and also reflecting on his past successes and his identity as an author. And the characters around him continue to challenge his worldview. So Adams takes on this role of a sort of spiritual advisor, which Ingham resents, as, as noted. Uh, and um, Jensen is this non-judgmental companion figure, but he also changes Ingham. One of the things that he does is humanise the locals to Ingham, which is kind of gratifying to see that in the end, Ingham becomes self-aware enough that, that he realises that, uh, he actually realises that Jensen is friends with a local family who were friends with his dog, I think. And that in itself is enough to remind Ingham that the people around him are human and loving and have families themselves. Uh, which is which is which is good because otherwise, um, so one thing that's it would be irredeemable for Ingham to go away and still have this um, negative feeling about the locals and the who he's lived amongst for so long. All right, then I'm going to talk about themes now. Um, first thing I want to talk about is isolation in a foreign country. What's it like? And I can tell you what it's like to a certain extent because I've done quite a bit of living away from home for two or three weeks at a time doing work in other parts of the world. Now, it's not the same as, say, living there for months on end. Um, but still, there is the distance between myself and the friends and family, which makes everything harder. The difference in time zones makes everything harder. The fact that you actually have to schedule to have regular discussions, they always happen at a certain point and the conversation is always suboptimal. Let's say there's three spheres of interaction that you have. There's the people back home uh, who you're communicating with over a distance for a short period of time asynchronously. Then there are locals who you have to interact with to get the job done while you're there. 
And finally, there are the other expatriates around you um, who you are likely to gravitate to. Not always, but certainly um, if you're travelling with colleagues, the chances are you'll see them every night and you will form relationships with them whether you want to or not, quite frankly. Uh, I like my colleagues, but, you know, they're not my friends. Um, but that's how it is working in a foreign country with a bunch of other people. You end up getting to know them. And um, if you're lucky, they'll have the same interests as you, but it doesn't always happen. And the interesting thing is then, what are the risks in those conversations? Um, I talked earlier about the moving from small talk into the realm of opinion. Well, it's kind of risky to put your heart on your sleeve early on and say, I have these particular opinions that turn out to be totally at odds with them. Uh, could um, make for an awkward few dinners afterwards if you, well, share too much. There's three different spheres of interaction. That's one of the important things. And it's very important when I come to talk about the structure of lag. I'll get into that. The second thing I want to talk about is the speed of communication. Now, it's less true if we are talking about modern communication where we have the internet, we have voice over IP, we have uh, video calling and cell phones, etc., etc. Of course, at the time when this was written, um, there was there are telephones, obviously, but um, generally communication was done by letters and uh, indeed it's typed on a manual typewriter in this case. So if you imagine you're isolated and you're going about your daily life and your daily life is sort of settling into routine and, and, you, and you don't have... Um, you don't have much taxing on your emotions, aside from maybe work, which which could be fraught. But if, aside from that, you settled into a rhythm. You've got that you're there to do one thing. So, you imagine then you receive some particularly shocking news from some distance away, and something you can't really do anything about, um, other than perhaps drop everything, which you're not going to do. But let's say you have particularly shocking news, and suddenly that is what will occupy your thoughts, uh, totally dominate them. Um, and everything will suddenly turn up, turn upside down and you'll get a new perspective on things. And of course, if your information is incomplete, uh, then, and you want to ask more questions, you can't just ask more questions if you're communicating via the speed of letters. Uh, you're, you might write down and say, please elaborate, and then you're waiting days to get another answer. Weeks, maybe. I mean, email's bad enough. So a synchronous conversation over the phone is is okay. And if you need to have one quickly, that's fine. But if you're relying on email or post, uh, that makes things harder. In fact, imagine if you're at the mercy of a postal service that isn't even reliable, so none of the letters arrive in the right order. That would make things especially hard. You know, and it could be something that the, the postal service isn't very good, or it could be, it could even be somebody is intercepting your letters. Say the concierge is not reliable in filing your letters and some of them get lost and then found later and you get things in the wrong order. What happens then? So the third thing I want to talk about then is uh, how people band together in a foreign country. And that's going to be, there's going to be a sense of cultural unease. It doesn't mean you actually don't like the, the people that you're there to see, but it does mean that you are not comfortable there. You're not comfortable with the time. You're not comfortable with with the food, or with the environment, or the heat, or whatever. But if you're there with other people who understand that discomfort, you end up banding together like a little tribe. 
And you might then have difficulty with local interactions. Those might be big problems or might be small problems. But what you do is you share your miseries with them. And these are the people where you're most likely to form an emotional connection, as I mentioned earlier. And you'll start off with small talk and then you will uh, venture into the realm of opinions later if you feel like it's worth the risk. Or maybe you even start talking about emotions. You think about the kinds of communication that the different characters have. There are... The small talk is initially between Adams and Jensen, and also between the uh, local hotel staff at Ingham. And later on, we have Adams ventures into the realm of opinions, uh, but the communication between both Jensen and Ina is much more at an emotional level uh, for two different reasons. I think Jensen, there was no real hump of belief or opinion that they had to get over. And they just, they, they realised, they hit it off. They realised that actually, yeah, they're well suited to each other, they're good drinking companions, and they sympathise with each other's position, and that makes them emotionally compatible. Uh, Ina, on the other hand, there's a presumption of emotional compatibility and that emotions will be shared because, of course, Ingham and Ina are lovers. But, again, going back to this previous comment, Ingham's view of Ina is kind of idealised. He sets her apart from the people he's come to you know, spend time with in Tunisia. He assumes that she would like to live in much more westernised, much more comfortable quarters, that she would have a particular standard of food and company that she would be expecting. All right, I think I've talked enough about the themes now. I want to talk about how those kind of uh, fold themselves into our game design lag. So... First of all, uh, I'm going to start talking a bit about lag, what it is. Now, I've done uh, a couple of articles on my blog, but um, I'm going to explain it briefly here, and then I'll put the uh, links to those in the show notes. First of all, Anexia, the uh, the city, it's, it's a dystopian city-state, and it's economically progressive, but it has questionable human rights. That means it treats travellers, certainly affluent ones, quite well, and uh, since all the characters will be staying in, in, in the preferred Western hotels in the central, in the commercial centre of the city-state, you assume that they may be aware that uh, the Anexia has a questionable human rights record. But they're also what they see and hear and feel are that it's uh, simply a, a capitalist mecca. The travellers have different missions, which are defined by their archetypes of which there are eight, which these are celebrity, corporate, entourage, entrepreneur, exile, hatchet, pilgrim, and player. Um, I've since actually changed those names so that there's uh, there's no alliteration um, and they'll, there's no re repeating letters of the alphabet, so they stand aside a bit better. Um, if it all sounds a bit powered by the apocalypse, that is intentional. Um, the way I would want this game to work is you hand out the playbooks and people can... Uh, look at those and that's pretty much all they need to have to play the game. Uh, I started this as a sort of Melandros hack using drama system with uh, the additional signature moves and I designed three kinds of encounters. There are mission scenes where the character pursues their goals, the reason for them being in Anexia and what they're pursuing 
then there are calls home where they make contact with the people back home, which would be uh, family, lovers, head office, that sort of thing. And finally, there are hotel encounters. And what should happen is the ref goes around the group and invites each of them to frame scenes which the players will choose as one of those three scenes. Um, and in drama system terms, the mission scenes are usually procedural and the other two are usually dramatic. Finally, characters have lag, which is the difference between their personal time zone and the one they're interacting with, either back home or locally. So uh, the idea is that as the game progresses, interacting with the world becomes easier, but the calls home get a lot more strained. So the similarities with the Tremor of Forgery are that there are three different kinds of people you interact with. Home, expatriates, natives. The expats here are the people in the hotel. Um, and you assume that the hotel visitors will all interact with each other. And the speed of communication is a lot less of an issue. Um, those conversations happen do happen between mission scenes. Um, but... To be honest, the emotional component of those probably doesn't interact at all with the mission scenes in themselves. However, one of the things that Melandros does is it has character downtime to refresh um, ability pools. I can't remember what they're called. Moves, signature moves, yes. Um, where in order to be able to use your signature moves and your, your general abilities, you can erase ticks by uh, doing something which is related to that activity. So if it's carousing, you go and uh, you go and get drunk or, or something, or, or if you if it's cooking, you have a nice meal. Uh, if it's martial arts, you do a bit of training, etc. So that kind of thing. Um, and one of the things the idea is that in those those downtime scenes could also be dramatic scenes. So in that sense you have the opportunity to do a, a downtime refresh and at the same time have a dramatic scene where you may there may be an exchange of drama tokens as well. Uh, and I think that concept of encouraging downtime scene type activity uh, by making it a currency that, that you need to accrue to then have the power to do the mission scenes is on the face of it a good one, but I do have a couple of misgivings which you'll get to later. But that was basically the idea. So the idea is that the um, the mission scenes are the ones that they're actually the character's overall plot arc, but it's the conversations in the hotel and home that actually give the character um, energy, that, that restore their fatigue, that uh, motivate them and, and uh, drive them on to complete what they're doing. That's the theory. So I'm going to talk about the playtest I ran, actually, which was a game with uh, Tim and Alistair. Um, we're playing Tim's Scurriburn campaign. This is a, a legend game, so it's uh, set in the Dragon Warriors world, although it's actually using GURPS, which is... This is a, a mini campaign, which is one of many legend games that Tim has run in the past since we were at university, basically. But unfortunately, we had to put it on hiatus uh, because, because one of our number couldn't make it. So... I had Tim and Alistair, and we were decided to run some one-shots. Alistair ran a one-shot first, which was a completely different legend game that was actually very cunningly just um, a way for him to showcase the backstory of his character in Tim's campaign, which is kind of cunning. Um, and then I ran Lag for a few sessions. So this is how it went. We had two characters. So one was a pilgrim character played by Tim. And this was a karate Olympian named Mike Ruthers, who'd had a sort of crisis of faith and, as a result, taken off to Alexia to go in search of the um, 
the a particular karate school that was the uh, birthplace of his style of karate. And the other character was a celebrity played by Alistair, a singer called James White, who'd been booked into a waterfront theatre called The Spiral, which is so-called because it's constructed like a helter-skelter with, with bars and restaurants all around the outside, getting a big view of the bay. And the game played out with mission scenes, hotel scenes, calls, calls home as designed. So I tried to remain true to the, the, the format of Hillfolk Stroke Melandros, which is to encourage everyone to do scene calling. And so around the table, uh, each person calls a scene and then it moves on to the next one. And when they call the scene, they frame the scene. They say which kind of scene it is. Um, procedural versus dramatic, in this case, uh, mission scene, home scene, etc. Uh, I found there was a slight problem with this with just two players and a GM. Uh, not a big problem, but I, I think it was something that would probably go away if we'd had one more player and I didn't have one. So the good stuff that happened in the play in, in the playtest uh, was right at the start we started off by drawing a character map and, and I think the character mapping is one of the most interesting things in drama system it works really well I really think it's terrific the way that the axes of the characters are defined about what one character wants from the other however in this instance the main character's couldn't possibly know each other in advance. And, and this is a really important distinction when comparing to other drama system. All of these characters in the hotel are thrown together. They have no emotional connection or need that needs they need satisfied by other hotel staff, sorry, by other hotel um, guests. Each of the players needed to describe their peripheral characters then. Uh, and these peripheral characters are in part what links the main characters together. Um, their individual people they call home to are uh, they're isolated so uh, Tim had a contact with um, his old sensei and Alistair's character had a contact with his agent Sarah Welwyn um, and then they also they both also defined uh, characters they have local contact with and the purpose of these characters is who they're going to interact with in pursuit of their missions. To, so they always have a character to to hang a scene off, or a mission scene. And so so that was fine. And they defined um, a local contact for, for Tim's character was a fellow Olympian who also knew something about the secret school, the origin, original karate school. And the um, Alistair's character's local contact was a local promoter. That was pretty straightforward. But seeing as this is drama system, we wanted all of these, this web of characters to link up. So the next thing I thought about was, you know, how do these local characters connect to the other PCs? Um, and the way I did this was, was basically ask around. And uh, so Tim had created this character of a karate champion. And Jane, uh, Alice's character, James White, uh, we decided was, uh, had been directly contacted by this, uh, this karate master who was also a big fan of um, James White's sort of, sort of brand of spiritual easy whistling, which was quite a strange sort of thing, but uh, it worked extremely well. And we then wove that character into the whole um, security setup for the spiral, the, the waterfront venue where he was performing. And on the same side, on the other side, Alistair's local promoter character was involved in some shady underground stuff that pushed his, his um, 
that pushed him into the realm of the esoteric. So uh, the underground fight promotion with um, connections with uh, secret and shady individuals who who were almost mythical and shadowy. And that's really the only practical way I had to connect the two principal characters. One of the one of the comments I got after the session was that it would be a lot better if the characters had known each other from the start. And I say, yeah, it would for a certain type of game, but this wasn't that game. So I need to think of a different way to do things. Now, one of the things I was quite pleased about uh, was the idea of spheres. So this this idea is that each of the travellers and the other individuals on the, on the um, relationship map exist in different spheres of interaction. So Alistair's main sphere of interaction was fame, and he also had a bit of corporate in him, uh, understanding the business side. Uh, Mike's interactions were mainly in the sphere of the esoteric, which is the, the main sphere that the pilgrim interacts with. And um, that is the connect can be the connection with um, mystery and uh, spirituality and um, strange goings on and also just secret organisations, uh, that sort of thing. There are a few other spheres like uh, government, uh, considered an underworld one, although I don't want to have too many uh, ones and that might uh, cross over to the esoteric as well. Um, there's a corporate sphere. There's um, I've said fame already. There's a couple more. Um, the idea is that uh, if a character is comfortable in a particular sphere, then they are able to pull off certain moves that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. And that's basically it. I don't really think we tested that at all. And I think part of it is because the moves weren't particularly... They, they weren't as obvious in gameplay. And also my players weren't as familiar with the, the sort of apocalypse world way of doing moves. Uh, they're much more traditional role players but and most of the time what we did was, was we freeformed our way through it and uh, it wasn't a big deal but it didn't really test the system I was thinking of still I think drawing the relationship map as a series of uh, of spheres that overlap so you have the um, you have fame overlapping with the esoteric overlapping with the corporate etc uh, and you can then move between these different social spheres as well as moving between locations and characters um, I'm going to try a bit more of that and, and see if I can make something out of it I was really pleased about how the actual scenes went uh, the progressions of the individual arcs um, the engagement of my players but I think partly that's because I've known them for more than 20 years and we've played a lot together with this kind of free form emotional discussion uh, and it worked really, really well. And I did like the ending. I was quite pleased with myself how I did to that. And, and the main the main thing that I managed to get in, which was in the original draft of Lag, was that one character must go home and one, one character must have to stay behind. That's the rule. And uh, in this case, of course, we only had two characters, so it was going to be there's going to be a decision to be taken. I eventually contrived to have um, Tim's character, the karate guy, uh, get into trouble, accidentally harm the police officer in attempting to escape, and um, having his fate then thrust into the hands of James White, who who was potentially there endorsing um, what is a, a regime with a questionable human rights record that he wasn't comfortable with. And I ended up giving Alistair the choice of whether he was going to stay and allow, allow Tim's character to head off home, or if he was going to say, no, 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 I can't do this, but then commit Tim to um, 
several years in a foreign jail. He made the right choice, I think. But that whole thing worked partly because I could rely on both of the players to to contribute the way they did. Um, so we didn't really test the robustness of the system as much as I might have liked. And I think there's a few things in there that I'd say need improvement. The first thing is, you might ask how two wildly different characters with really no reason to interact whatsoever get together in-game. And the answer is, they did not. They didn't at all, until I contrived them to be in the same room. And that wasn't a problem. I like games where you follow around individuals and see what they're doing. Uh, what I'd really want to do uh, if we were going to play that kind of game is you follow around the individuals, you see how they're interacting in their personal missions, and then you use the relationship map to create ripples and influence what's going on with other characters, um, which is kind of um, an interesting uh, microscope-like um, world-building shared world exercise, I guess. Um, some people might not like that. I don't know. But ultimately, then we the characters didn't really interact at all, and uh, I, I think that was a that was a shame. Part of the issue, I think, was the incentives for making calls home and having hotel scenes, and those were less obvious here. So I said earlier, then you're supposed to use these to refresh abilities, but um, I think whether it was lack of rigor or or it was just uh, it was only in the playtesting stages, or we weren't really sure about it, or we were having too good a time just. Uh, free-forming through things and not touching the dice at all. We didn't really keep count of the tokens as much as we uh, we should. Now, the way the drama tokens worked was a bit woolly, and uh, I don't think any of us liked this, and it reminded me of the things I wasn't so keen on playing Hellfolk in the past. Like the game, like the scene calling, like the emotional conversation, never felt the exchange of drama tokens at the end added anything to the game, and I don't think... Uh, I don't think Tim and Alistair felt that either. Um, although they did try to then spend their drama tokens and use them so that they would actually uh, give the game a fair go. And I think if there's going to be interaction between the player characters, the primary player characters who are travellers, I need to do one of the following. First of all, you could emphasise the hotel scenes above all others and, and get the characters to form relationships by pushing them together. Um, and this is very lost in translation, and it's also very tremor of forgery, um, as Ingham spends up a lot of time with the other two expatriates. The other way that you could do that is get the players to play secondary characters. For the calls home, I think that this is a must, and it would be good to have, uh, say, you always make your call home with the player to your left playing the person they're calling home, then you can have an interesting emotional discussion where both of you can have an idea about what you want and you take an awful load off the GM as well. And then much less, there maybe also have people standing in and playing secondary characters who are locals. I think in the first case, um, having a lot more interaction between the actual characters and the travellers and having them having them have conversations about why they're there and whether they're revealing the truth or not, but incentivizing those conversations by rewarding, revealing things about them is one way of doing it. I know that um, games like Night Witches have the mission pool and it has the distinction between daytime and nighttime. And um, whilst it's not exactly the same sort of thing, characters doing certain things in what is quote-unquote downtime helps build up the mission pool. And in this case... It could build up drama tokens, which could then be directly applied in missions. 
then you've kind of got a blurring of the lines between the um, procedural and the dramatic, which I think is is good and necessary. Another game I'm aware of, uh, which I think it's still in Kickstarter, just is uh, Becky Anderson's Bite Me. Uh, she's talked about it on this on this podcast before, and I also pitched it a bit with a recent blog post on this podcast. And I know there um, a lot of it is about pack dynamics and encouraging uh, emotional conversations between characters. And uh, I think there's a there's an interview with her on Plus One Forward, and she talks about her favourite move, which is spill. And I can't remember if that's getting other people to to basically cough up their their feelings, or if it is doing so oneself and and uh, voluntarily vomiting forth the, the resentment and all the fear all the love or whatever they're feeling coming forward but it's a great idea and and i think that um kind of awkward amongst strangers but i would like to explore this idea about the risks people take by revealing more things about themselves one of the other things we really didn't get on with though going back to the drama system system is the quantizing of skills where you if you use a skill you tick it and you need to refresh it before you can tick it again as much as we we're trying to embrace the game it didn't make sense for us uh and admittedly as i said we're pretty trad people and we basically say that the skills are the skills they're always on it doesn't make sense that you could suddenly not use them and i think this is the objection i have and probably quite a few people have to gumshoe for example like the concept of gumshoe really want to get into it but just doesn't do anything for me i kind of think it's a solution in search of a problem as i said before i get why melandros does it to incentivize rest periods and move the game into the dramatic space and i think it's a great idea but i'm wondering if there's a better way to achieve that the other thing i didn't like so much about the dramatic scenes was the um the discussion in the post-dramatic scenes with uh you know who got the emotional concession who got the drama token not so keen about that, never have been, and we really felt it broke up the flow of the conversation we were having. Uh, again, a solution in search of a problem, perhaps. Last thing, I think the concept of lag, which was the central premise of the, what I initially thought about, before I thought about anything else, it really needs work. Uh, now, in theory, the, the characters start off close to their home time zone, making calls home easy and local interactions difficult, and during the game, this should flip over. Does this actually reflect jet lag and fatigue? Should we be counting fatigue that the character suffers, and how much they can function each day, and what kind of fatigue debt they're operating under? One of the interesting things I said to Tim and I, you know, we talked about this, he's done a lot of travelling as well, and we both agree that what usually happens is you travel long distances, you have a burst of adrenaline. The first day, you can get stuff done, and then suddenly everything hits you. So is this idea that everything's going to be difficult locally from day one accurate? Don't know. Would a fatigue system work better with a limited number of moves and then spending time beyond your freebies you actually have to push yourself at some potential penalty that could work okay last comment so these are the things i would keep from drama system uh i keep the relationship map i think it's absolutely brilliant uh, i think it's brilliant as a sort of just setting out this is the game we're playing and, and the environment we're playing in uh definitely keep the interplay between different scene types um you need to motivate the players to frame certain kinds of scenes, but the the general idea of different types of scenes is solid. Focus on the hotel scenes, encourage the PCs to spend time with one another. Um, and that needs an incentive, of course. Uh, same sort of incentive for calls home, probably. System-wise, though, um, I am moving towards Powered by the Apocalypse, which fits playbooks better. It does One of the things it does really well is rapid growth through experience. 
But there is another option I thought about, and one of the reasons I thought about it was because one of the other things uh, that's an influence on the, the general feel of lag is Over the Edge. Over the Edge is powered by a system called Warp, or Wanton Role-Playing. Um, you may or may not have heard of it in isolation. It was released under the OGL around 2011, 2012, I think. It's a really great little system. Expertise is just counted by rolling extra D6s, and the idea is the higher the number that you roll on a number of D6s, the better. You could make this kind of apocalypse world-like by rolling multiple dice and then keeping the best two, or possibly the worst two, um, and then applying the standard move structure of 10 plus being a success, 79 middling and 6 minus a failure. And, um, and characters then define their very broad skill set and negotiate its use in play. So it's, it kind of gets to be that um, loosey-goosey, very broad let me talk about what my character can do kind of activity, but still retain the sort of the intermediate results of um, of uh, Apocalypse World type uh, dice rolling. It's also got some really great uh, mechanics for fringe powers and experience. Experience is basically just you, you get an extra D6. Um, now, I don't think this would work in such a short-term game, but it could work. So I'm kind of thinking, is there something that I could do to, to incorporate the two together and still benefit from Powered by the Apocalypse moves, which are much more overt than, say, the, the signature moves in Melandros and the playbook structure, but still be kind of a lot looser and more freeform, uh, more like over the edge. I'm not sure. I'm going to mull it over. And I think that's all I have to say about this, but I am going to revisit this concept when next time I'm going to talk about Cocaine Nights by J.G. Ballard. Uh, I might actually um, do a whole sequence of Ballard. Um, High Rise is something I meant to cover ages ago. And then there's Supercan is the um, the successor to Cocaine Nights and the second one in a trilogy of stories about gated communities. So it all fits together. Until then, thanks for listening. Did you like this episode? If so, maybe you could write us a review on iTunes. Or you could at me at Victorplasm on Twitter. Or you know, leave a comment on the website, which is www.victorplasm.net. Or join our Facebook group. It's all good. Really appreciate those people who've reached out to give their positive feedback. The music for this podcast is provided by Chris Zabriskie. You can find more of that at www.chrissabriskie.com.